there was also a guy that was very close with my dad. He was much younger, though. They um, knew each other through the, the business, like vending machine business type of thing. And Philly, his name is Philly Panuccio. He was very, very close with us. And he also knew my brother very well because um, my brother was doing the vending um, around the time that he died. And I don't know the time frame. I have to ask my mom if she remembers, but Philly was was murdered as well. He was shot in his um, Porsche, literally on a side street going over a, a bridge over the parkway. Do you know if Philly had any mob connections. I love that you're doing that gesture, but people can't hear a gesture, so I need you to say something. I can't say. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm Jason B. Jones, and this is season two of Knock Knock, the unsolved murder of John Bellatieri. Episode three, the Panuccio predicament. That Zoom call was between Jess and Teresa in January of 2020. When the team first took on this case, Teresa had briefly mentioned the possibility of a connection to organized crime in John's murder, and ever since then, everyone has wanted to chase that rabbit trail. When Teresa first mentioned Phil on the phone, we weren't sure what to think about his involvement in the family. But, according to Teresa's mother, Gloria, Phil and the Bellatieri's go way back. So what are you telling me? I, I, I know I told you the story. because I don't fun. know if I remember. Daddy and Phil lived next door to each other. You knew that. In the Bay, right? In Bayside. In Bayside, yeah. yeah. So one night we were coming home and there was a, a, a van parked there. Daddy said, that looks very suspicious. I said, I don't know. He said, he's a bit checking out on Phil. I said, okay, whatever. So we went upstairs and the next morning, Daddy looked at us and the van was still there. He says, you got it. He says, so he says to Phil, he says, well, the van is still there. He said, what are we going to do? So Phil says, I got to get rid of the gun. I can't be caught with this gun. So he says, I don't, Gloria will take care of it. Now, I have on a mink coat. So I wrapped a bandana. Now, this is the funny part, <laughs> a band on my head. Like, I'm his cleaning lady with the mink coat. With the mink coat? Yeah, with the mink coat. So I, so I put the, so I got a bunch. Boy, you were a gang member. I got a whole bunch of, of dirty clothes. We put them in the bottom of this basket with the clothes on top of the gun. And I walked out with the, with the basket, with the bandana. And I drove down Northern Boulevard. And I saw a train. <laughs> so I parked the car, got up, got out of the car with my mink coat and the bandana, and put the car, the gun down the down the drain. Oh my God! Did you wipe your fingerprints off first? <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. The good old days. The good old days. The nights were bad either. <laughs> That's an old saying. I never heard that one. Yeah. 
So when Teresa told us that Phil had been killed just three years after John, we knew it garnered a closer look. And after seeing some news reports regarding the event, we were surprised by some similarities between John's murder and Phil's. A reputed organized crime associate was shot dead early Thursday as he drove his late model Porsche. Phil Panuccio was found dead in his car along an expressway in Bayside, Queens. He'd been shot several times by a 38 caliber handgun and a shotgun, with bullet wounds to the face and arms. His car was riddled with bullets. Cash and jewelry were found on the body. What's more, Phil was actually identified by law enforcement as a low-level associate of two New York organized crime families. He was a drug trafficker and had been since at least 1980, when he was arrested for involvement in a major cocaine ring. In 1980, Panuccio was arrested for his involvement in a major cocaine ring in Suffolk County. So, but who did he, who was he worried about may have been in the van? I don't know. I really don't know what he, I guess he, I don't know. Well, somebody shot him, so evidently he was, uh... Well, was he worried about the cops or, because if he was worried about someone who was after him, no, he wouldn't have wanted to get rid of the gun. No, it wasn't that. It was the, the, not the cops, the, uh, the people that take care of you when you're on parole. Oh, his parole officer? Something like, I don't, I don't know, honey, I don't. Uh -huh. Well, no, she said, get rid of the gun. I said, okay. So wait, this was after he got out of jail? I didn't even know what he was in jail for. But evidently it was bad because somebody shot him in the head and killed him. Mm. And they never, you, you don't remember if there was any investigation into Philly being shot or any suspects in your mind or daddy's mind? No idea? No, I have no idea. No idea who killed him. So Gloria had no idea who killed Phil. Luckily, we do. And it's kind of a wild story. It revolves around three brothers and their racketeering enterprise, dubbed the Tellier Organization. But to police, the brothers and their conspirators were known as the Crash and Carry Gang. Much like their namesake states, they would intentionally crash their cars into fur salons, jewelry stores, and art galleries, steal as much merchandise as they could, and make a quick getaway. The group partook in stunts like this for more than a decade before the law finally caught up to them. Once investigated, the police found 14 members of the Tellier organization to be involved in much more than simple theft. Aside from racketeering charges, conspiracy charges, and a slew of murder charges, two of the Tellier brothers, Robin and Rene, were convicted of murdering a man who they believed had cheated them out of stolen property. That man was Phil Panuccio. So we have Phil, a close family friend of the Bellatieri's, who was killed gangland style by an organized crime ring along an expressway while driving at night. What could this mean for John? Well, while the Bellatieri's had no known involvement with New York organized crime, John's murder did closely resemble something of a mob hit. And after looking over Phil Panuccio's murder, with how similar it was to John's case, we were ready to tackle this theory more seriously. But before going any further, we need to go over a bit of history behind New York organized crime and how the Bellatieri's family vending machine business had the potential to be tied into it. 
My name is Joshua Roberts, and I'm an attorney in Springfield, Missouri. We got connected with Joshua Roberts to get his insight into what money laundering would have looked like back in the 80s. I've been practicing for about 22 years. Probably the largest component of uh, my practice is criminal defense, uh, handling federal cases, and primarily conspiracy to distribute all different types of illegal substances. And then the other things that go along with that, including the money laundering. Back in the day, the vending machines, they were manual, they weren't computerized, and they didn't have ways to verify the quantity of inventory that was run through them, especially in the 80s. So you don't necessarily have a count on how many times somebody plays pinball, right? So uh, in any type of a inventory-based business where you can launder money, I mean, the whole goal is to layer illegal money with legal money that at the end of it, it all looks like it was derived from legal means. Say we were selling cigarettes through vending machines. So you could do that a couple of different ways. You can falsify quantity sales or you can falsify price. And there's a couple of different ways to do each one of those. But uh, if you wanted to have a legitimate source, uh, you could fake the inventory receipt. You could say, hey, yeah, we bought a thousand packs of cigarettes and we sold them. And this is the money that we made on it when in fact you only sold a hundred. However, the risk you run if you do that is that, you know, they could easily verify. They go back to Marble and say, hey, did you sell these guys a thousand packs of cigarettes? And I say, no. So smarter people will actually buy the thousand packs of cigarettes. Uh, and then they just don't, they don't sell them all. They sell a hundred of them and they say they sold a thousand of them. And then they'll destroy the inventory. The ones that are more successful at it will actually purchase the inventory because if it's investigated into, then they go back to Marble and say, hey, did you sell these guys a thousand packs of cigarettes? And I said, yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. You know, so it's legit there. So the fact that John's car was found with $32 in change and 29 cartons of cigarettes could lead us to two conclusions. Either he was well-stocked for his father's honestly-run vending machine business, or John was getting himself involved in organized crime on his own accord. Did your dad have any mob connections? When you say that, do you mean was he in the mob? No. Did he know people that were? Yes. Yeah, that would be part of his business, you know. Do you think any of those connections at any point may have reached out to your brother? I have definitely crossed that bridge before, but I've never really got, you know, into the weeds with that. But do I think that it was um, a known thing? No. Do I think that is it possible that something got crossed over or misunderstood or something. I think it's always a possibility because you're dealing with a, a business back in the 80s that was well known to be looked upon like it was in some way mob controlled or connected or something like that. Be someone, someone, someone in 
my little world Crazy though I seem Fool that I might be Someone Who really sees me As I am From an outside perspective, Rocco was a pretty good father. It seems unlikely that he would be involved in any type of organized crime. Wouldn't Teresa have remembered more suspicious activity or constantly seeing him with strangers? In fact, in John's police report, investigators reached out to a division specializing in organized crime regarding suspicion of the family's involvement, and the police were subsequently advised that the Bellatieri's were clean-cut. What's more, Teresa's husband, also named John, took over the family vending business when Rocco died in 2010, and, from what we've gathered, he hasn't found anything suspicious in its records or dealings. My dad would never, you know, let that risk his family and his business. So nobody looked at my dad like that. They looked at my dad as, you know, a good guy and a friend and a businessman who was on the right side of the tracks. You know, he had a legitimate business. Rocco, by all accounts, was a stand-up guy. He brought in children who weren't his own. He was respected for the way he ran his business. And back in the day when he was releasing records as a lounge singer under the name Roy Beltier, he had a pretty killer voice. Roy Beltier, age 23, was born and raised in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn. Roy is single, living with his mother. He stands exactly six feet tall, and his frame holds 175 pounds beautifully. He has soft brown eyes and hair to match. Roy Beltier is a well-educated and interesting young man with a great voice who is destined to start This is attorney Joshua Roberts again, back on the topic of money laundering. Nor is arcade games because you can't really, you can't say, yeah, we sold 100 packs of cigarettes and we sold them all for $5,000 a piece. You know, there's kind of a fair market value for those types of things. Uh, so you're a little bit limited on being able to jack with a price. That's another way when you're laundering money through inventory, you can mess with the price. And you could say you sold them for a, a lot more than you did as long as it's not ridiculously suspicious. Despite the possibility the Bellatieri family could have been laundering money through their vending machine business, we're finding this theory less and less likely the deeper we look. From all we've gathered, there's no indication of organized crime involvement by the family outside of a few friends like Phil Panuccio. And while John could have been involved without the knowledge of those around him, there just isn't any substantial evidence pointing toward this. From our initial phone call with Teresa, it was also obvious she wasn't confident in the way police handled the case. 
And given the picture this gangland-style murder painted, it's not hard to imagine police may have thought twice before stepping on any toes. As far as that goes, it, it, nothing ever, you know, prompted us to do well or my dad to do well in his business because there was any mafia involvement. But it was always something I know that, especially the cops, when this happened, may have thought, oh, yeah, well, look at this. Look what the father does and, you know, carries a pistol and brother works for the company and... I think they dismissed it as that's what it was um, and never really pursued it as a violent murder of a 26-year-old boy. So the police may have done a subpart job handling the case. And without going into detail quite yet, it's pretty obvious there was some oversight in the original report. But the original report isn't exactly where police involvement ended. In fact, Teresa decided it was time to bring the police back in, 36 years later. Hello. Um, here we see Detective This is about a cold case. Okay, all right, uh, give me a second. Yeah, right okay, thank you. On her own accord, Teresa sought out an NYPD detective, and fortunately, he agreed to look at John's case. Maybe he could get the names, evidence, and access that we couldn't. Maybe an arrest wasn't that far off. Things seemed to be moving forward, at least we thought. Hey, guys. Hey. Uh, hey. How are you? Good, good, good. Um, is this a good time for you yeah. guys? Sure. Yeah, we're all here together. Okay. okay, good. I just left the precinct with the detective, so I wanted to kind of fill you guys in, and so I hope you're sitting down. It sound too good on, from what I can gather. Hmm. Okay. What's yeah. up? So, I mean, I don't know. You know, I, I laid my case down, basically, to him. Really, I honestly think he truly doesn't understand any of it and how it works. He kind of related you guys to not be taken seriously. Hmm. Um, he thinks you guys are blabbermouths, to, to be honest. Right. <laughs> um, and kind of what I think he meant by it is, you know, you guys are going to get information, put it out there to the world and ruin it for him type of thing. Yeah or ruin it for the case in general. So w when he was saying that, in my mind, I'm saying he really doesn't um, understand how this works at all. This is when things got complicated. Obviously, the lead detective didn't trust us. And as you could hear in that clip, this immediately put pressure on Teresa. She is now the one stuck in the middle, trying to keep both us and the lead detective informed and appeased. He, he said, basically, if they're going to be a part of it, I'm not going to take the case. Now, with this detective's orders, what could she afford to tell us? This is important to me and to my family. And, you know, sometimes I feel like there, there's, no, there's no real hope. Um, and him to say something like that makes it even worse. For season one, 
One of my highest priorities was to ensure a good working relationship with the police. I saw the only way forward with Betty and Catherine's investigation was to maintain trust and communication with Lieutenant Lott, who was heading up the case. Yes, we can find out a lot of information on our own, but it would be stupid not to trust the man with the training, knowledge, and a solid understanding of the legal system. Thus, when we first learned that a detective was going to take on John's case, but didn't want us to be involved, I knew we had a serious problem. How could anything move forward from here? This is definitely a tough nut to crack. I don't believe that he won't take the case. I really don't, in my heart. I don't know what I can do, but I'm certainly going to have another conversation about it. For several months, we were at odds with this seasoned NYPD detective. We wanted to help Teresa to the best of our ability, but we knew we couldn't risk blowing John's case. So we decided to inch forward as much as we could on our own, with Teresa feeding us bits and pieces whenever she received an update. And it wasn't long before a very important one came through. Like, I don't like to, that feeling of having to do something, you know, that somebody specifically asked me not to do type of thing. And it has nothing to do with you guys that at all. New fingerprint matches were found. This was huge, especially in a case that had been dormant for 36 years. And Teresa knew that this information was vital to our side of the investigation. So she headed into no man's land for a moment to give it to us. So he did he shoot you a text? Did he email you? Okay, I was walking my dog and picked up. He said that he had two names that he wanted to give me. So I ran inside, grabbed a pen, and he gave me the first name. And then he had to find the second name. And then I kind of had to drag it out of him, to be honest, because he was just giving me the name. And and I said, well, is this relevant in, you know, what way is this relevant? Um, Is this someone that you just want me to see if I know or is there a specific reason? And he said, no, there's a specific reason. We got a match to the prince. Okay, so the first name he gave you was... Right. Was Larry... Which did not ring a bell to me in any way, shape, or form. So, so what was the second name? Okay. It's Martin... Immediately, Jess was off and running. And before long, she had struck gold. I know I at least saw part of that name somewhere in my research. So I'm going through all my handwritten notes and it hits me, the mobster's name, Phil Pancino or Pancino or however you say it. This is the one that signed the guest book at John's funeral, right? Exactly. So I go to that exact same page and on that exact same page, just above his name, is the name Margaret with the same weird last spelling of the name. 
And the reason why it stood out to me is, I don't know if you guys remember, but when Teresa was looking through the funeral and taking pictures of all the pages, she had pointed on that one because it was Phil, the mobster. And so it kind of stood out. And so I had read over that page a hundred times and that name just popped out at me. So I went through the rest of the book, found a second one and his name was Vincent. Okay. They have the same address according to that book. So I'm like, is not like the most common name. It's definitely more common in New England, but it's still not that common. Mm-hmm. So I start doing research. I have evidence that both a Margaret and a Vincent had lived at the same address as a Martin, who is the name that matches the fingerprints. But Martin, according to the guest book, wasn't at the funeral. But wait, it gets weirder. So I get this address and I'm looking at it and I'm like, I know this address. I know this address. Like, where do I know this address from? So I pull up all my old research, control F, find this address, start entering it in. And it pops up as a possible address of someone I was trying to track down who we never really found, but we've heard his name many times. Mr. Stewart. What? Okay. 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 You just officially got my attention. So let's rewind a little bit. We have two names found in John's funeral book with a matching last name and address as the person whose fingerprints came back a match. And the address tied to all three of these names is also linked to a guy named Stewart. So who is Stewart? He was a pallbearer at your brother's funeral. Yes. He was my brother's best friend. Stuart has essentially, since the time of John's death, gone off the deep end. You might also remember us mentioning Stuart in the last episode when we were attempting to reach out to some of John's friends. For the sake of confidentiality, we haven't been using his last name. So ultimately, Stuart, someone that he was either related to by blood or by by marriage, uh, fingerprints were at the crime scene. Is there a possibility that this guy was friends with my brother through Stewie and could have an innocent reason for having his fingerprints absolutely. in the car? Sure, that's absolutely a possibility. But it's very interesting that this person whose fingerprints were in the car did not attend the funeral. Or on the car. Yeah, we're yeah we don't, we don't know if it was in or on. Yeah, that's right. Then, just a few days later, Jess emailed us with an even more bizarre piece of information. She explains that Martin, whose fingerprints were recently linked to the scene of the crime, was actually a postal worker. Remember from the police report that a postal worker was at the scene of the crime when first responders arrived. And despite this postal worker having helped find the body, they were never interviewed by police. We don't want to draw any hasty conclusions, but this coincidence was too strange to be left out to dry. Now that we had these crucial connections, we had to find a way to tell the lead detective without making Teresa look like a traitor 
or us look like hungry media vultures. It's these intense and decisive moments when I'm the most thankful to have a team with me now. After some deliberation, it was decided that Jess would type up her most professional, detailed version of the new information and give it to Teresa, who would ever so delicately deliver it to the lead detective in hopes that he would see it as an olive branch from the podcast guys. And a couple days later, Jess got a call. So I just got the weirdest call in the world. Um, Detective just called me. Wait, I thought that he didn't want anything to do with this. Well, so let me give you a little bit of background. I told Teresa this information to pass on to Detective And he mm-hmm. basically was like, no, yeah, I mean, he wasn't a postal worker. And I said, Teresa, tell him I have proof he was a postal worker. And so this went back and forth. Like, he did not want any information from me at all. Right. So then I send all the information to Teresa. And I said, just send him this. Well, what I didn't know was Teresa, God love her, went into this big, huge thing about just advocating for us, about how passionate we are, how we're there for her, we're her family, we have her back, and he just has to deal with that. That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. So then, in that note, she includes all of my evidence about who this guy is, the weird connections, all of that evidence that I had. She forwarded on to him, and the next thing I know, my phone's ringing, and it's a call from New York, and it was Detective And so, was was the call awkward? How did, how did it how did it start? Um, well, it started with me being like, uh, 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 hi, right, right. it was totally like, what is happening yeah. here? Um, so here's what happened. He starts going through and he's like, oh, wow. So he's actually a postal worker. Like that was a summary of one of the very first things he said to me. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I think that's the guy from the night of the murder. Well, there you go. Maybe that's yeah. the maybe that's the uh, the end that we need in order to be able to gain trust with this guy. I mean, I would hope so. Like he said, he feels sure it's the postal worker from that night. And we kind of talked about some other things. You know, he was kind of dismissive about some things. He kept talking about how the case was going to be really difficult to solve because everyone that knew John is dead. Sure. And I'm. I'm thinking to myself, well, that's not accurate. We've talked to a lot of people that know John. That's right. Yeah. You know, so that was a little bit weird. Um, I did find out some information because with the other name of Larry, I had found a Larry who was a sex offender and he says that that's not the same guy. So that's at least interesting to know that like I can close that guy off my list and it's not him. Um, but I mean, like I said, he was pretty sure that the postal worker is the one from the scene and he said he's not considering it closed until somebody's in cuffs. At last, it seemed as though we and the lead detective were finally on the same side. No more sneaking around with information, making Teresa the middleman. Maybe this was the crucial turning point in the case. It's time to take those names and run with them. 
next time on Knock Knock. Summertime. I didn't speak to her. I did not speak to her. And I haven't spoken to her since. How are you not going to talk to a guy that's that closely associated with John? Oh, your dad is rich. But he got out of the car without a word and went right up to the sky and basically, you know, threatened his life. One of these mornings, you're going to rise up singing. Knock Knock is a lasting media production and is hosted by me, Jason B. Jones. The show is produced by Jonas Litton, Ben Delameter, and Jess Bouchard. Our executive producers are John Fender, Jason Barrett, and Jason B. Jones. Our theme music is by DJ Form and Hawk Silver, and our outro music is by Roy Beltier. Special thanks to Teresa Alimo, Bill Lerwick, Joshua Roberts, and Gloria Bellatieri. To join the Knock Knock community, be sure and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Knock Knock Pod. There you can ask questions, leave comments, or just say hi. Also, head to our website, knockknockpodcast.com, to view files, photos, and more from the case. Want to dig deeper? Get involved with me and the whole Knock Knock team on our Discord server. You can find the link in the show notes. We've also set up a hotline at 888-572-3889. If you have comments or questions, please call and leave a message. You can also rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews are key to keeping Knock Knock on the charts where people can find our show. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks again for following the Knock Knock podcast. One more, one, one of these mornings, you're going to rise up singing. And you'll spread your wings and you'll take to the sky. Until that morning, there ain't nothing can harm you. Hurry, daddy and mammy. 